Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Kavanagh Sisters and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Counting In Podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we will be looking at the psychological impacts of childhood sexual abuse and discussing how they manifested for each of us in our lives. Well, I mean, we were abused from infancy, really. We were primed for abuse from the moment we were born. We were groomed and full penetrative sex occurred with all of us around the age of four. So we really didn't have a childhood and we had our two main caregivers. One of them was sexually abusing us and the other was completely emotionally unavailable to us. The point was, as a child, your two main caregivers are not there for you. And the people that you are instinctively placing all of your love and trust in are hurting you. The only conclusion you're left to come to is that there must be something wrong with you. You can't even trust your own judgment that the people you believed in were your worst nightmare. What hope did we have? When, as children, you didn't receive any loving nurturing of any kind, what hope has any child got? It alters the way your brain works. It alters your behavior because your behavior in every way have to now adapt to the new norm, which is daily abuse. And also, um, keeping the secret of abuse isolates you instantly. You become a loner. You think you're the only person in the world that this is happening to and so that's very dangerous and also you wouldn't realize the energy required to hold on to that secret so you know imagine how a child would feel because i'd struggle as an adult our behaviors and our ability to adapt to relationships occurred when we were very young inside a house but outside the house as well so how did we relate to to other children on the road to other adults on the road. Well, adults were scary people, creatures anyway, because every adult had power and control over you. Every adult, anyone could hit you. And it was never questioned. It was just automatically assumed you did something wrong. When I think back and looking at the writing that we've done, we were all very isolated. Like we were sociable. We, we were friendly in school, on the street and all that. And we were amicable enough that you couldn't have spotted there was anything wrong. So it was masks. As young children, yeah. But when we became teenagers, but for us, that didn't shift that ability to have an open dialogue to express something. But I never was, I wasn't any better as a teenager at expressing myself than I was as a five-year-old. It didn't get any better for me. Yeah, and I, like, I had one friend uh, as a teenager and I was only drawn to her because I witnessed her having a row with somebody and telling them how much they'd hurt her. And I was so fascinated with her because of her ability to express her emotions, I had to make a friend with her. I would have been the same. I had one friend and I admired her because she seemed, always seemed to be full of life, always come up with great plans and schemes. We're going here, we're going there. And I just wanted to be near her because I felt lifeless. That wasn't the appearance. And it hasn't been our experience with you because of the three of us. You were the mover and the shaker. You were the one that always took the first steps to do anything. 
I also recall people saying to me until they got to actually speak to me they had an assumption that I was snobby that I thought I was it and that I I wouldn't speak to them the truth was I was so self-conscious my eyesight was dreadful so I wouldn't make eye contact with anybody I was dying inside and so shy and yet the perception that I managed to throw out there was that I was confident yeah I thought I was better than others it's like I mean I just can't believe how did I do that I remember even having a conversation with somebody who had only just met me. The second time I ran into her, I didn't even say hello. And half the time I didn't recognise faces even. But even if I did recognise your face, I certainly wouldn't have known your name. And therefore I would have avoided the uncomfortable bit of having to say hello when I didn't know who I was talking to or where I'd met you. I mean, that's another effect of abuse. How you can be perceived. And yet it's the complete opposite of the reality. We didn't remember anything. We had no retention you know, anything we learned for school, it was by heart. You had to recite it and then it was gone. Yeah, because it was survival mode. Everything was about getting through the immediate problem or Challenge. obstacle that was in front of you. Yeah. Whatever that took. But as soon as it was gone, it was gone. For us, um, building relationships outside of the house wasn't a priority. In, in lots of ways, it wasn't a priority for any of us because we were so busy trying to survive in the house with a, a large family. Yeah, it wouldn't have dawned to me. But just, there was always gangs of kids. But you just joined in whatever they were doing. Whatever they played, we just joined in. She would be called into the house, raped, and then sent back out to play. And because you had to go from the traumatic rape and then go straight back out and play a game with your friends, like your your survival depended on your ability to completely shut that off (coughs) and move on. Yeah, because I think the rapes became so commonplace, so every day, that they were a complete dissociation experience. When the rape would take place, you would just completely dissociate until it was over. And then you had to return to some semblance of normality. Our normality was numb, really. I mean, it was just not, don't feel anything. When you think of it, our primary caregiver really was dad, as opposed to mommy. She was, she wasn't even present. But so he was really the primary caregiver. I think the, the hardest thing to get over when you're being abused was his ability to rape you while you were begging him to stop while you were crying and you knew as soon if you cried or asked him to stop you were going to get hit as well as raped i know when i was staring at a corner in the ceiling that provided some form of escape but it also allowed me to separate the abuser from my dad this evil thing and then i had dad so when he went downstairs and he was asking for a cup of tea and it did allow me to separate them now, I'm, I'm not saying that I was aware of that at the time, but it was really important for me as a child to hold on to a dad because mum was always in work. And even when she wasn't, she was always busy. It's really only a couple of years ago now that I realised that what chance had we got even trying to build a relationship, a romantic relationship with anybody when we didn't know even what love was. We'd never experienced it. We had to we had to create our own experience of love and I remember putting my partner through hell. Like I'd be testing him now and all subconsciously. I wouldn't have been doing this deliberately. But on reflection, I could see that I was testing him because I didn't believe anybody could love me. And we would have had rows constantly because of the complete self-hatred that develops in people as a result of sexual abuse and not being able to discuss it. The self-hatred that grows out of that absolutely destroys your life. 
and it's so unnecessary but it does happen and uh, you know that's really the deep work that happens when you look at the impacts the psychological impacts sexual abuse has on you but then a lot of the behavior that i would have developed as a teenager and uh, um sleeping with anybody and everybody apart from the confusion of my own sexuality that was born out the inability to form a relationship with somebody a real relationship with somebody but every time you would have a sexual encounter with somebody it would be more ammunition to hate yourself i know i had a bigger fallout after it than i did before it when i entered into my first gay relationship that was very unhealthy i remember thinking at least i won't have to sleep around so i would have stayed with her for no other reason other than at least i wasn't sleeping around and then that comes touches back on that self-trust that you can't even trust yourself because you're now out of control. And that's what happens with all of the impacts that are involved in sexual abuse. They, they, they have a sell by day. They do grow to the point that you're now going to, you're either going to explode or implode. You know, your mental health is going to go or you're going to do something really drastic. Yeah, it is amazing what the mind can do and the games we play. But it's, you know, what shocks me most is we really had no idea what was going on in our heads. Never mind our lives. We had no idea. Like I got married. I was in relationships and I didn't even know that I was incapable of being in that space. I think I had some kind of dream in my head. This is the way this should look. You know, and like you, I would have, when I got married and had children, I believed I had to be the perfect wife. The perfect mother. I mean, such a strain when I hadn't a clue how to be either. But nothing else would have been acceptable to me. And I, as I said, wouldn't have been aware of that. I always felt I was under tremendous pressure. And I felt a lot of the time I was in shock. And it is true that we're, we all lived out the position we held within the family, outside of the family. We carried the position we stood in relation to the abuse with the three of us, for example. I always taught you, Joyce, well, I mean, it was no secret, you were the pet. So I was second in command. Paula, it wasn't a secret either that he had huge conflict with you. You were in deep in trouble with him and you were his favourite. And I slotted in the middle. I wasn't hated and I wasn't treated special either. That was my norm. So I found that when I went out in life, and I got a job or anything, and I had an opportunity to excel in a job, I, fri- I was frightened. I didn't want it. I wanted to be second in command. And I still feel like that now. I feel like, put me up front and I nearly die. Put me second in command and I'm there. And I can aspire to be on top. The realisation of it made me look at our family dynamics and realise that, in fact, we all took the position we were in, in the family, out with us. I, d- I don't like being last and I don't particularly want to be first. And it's gas. You I know. would have said I hated the outfit. I would have done everything to piss him off. I certainly didn't want anything from him or any attention from him. But when I went outside the house, that need to follow orders. And it doesn't matter if the person who asked me to do it, I can't stand. The fact that I was given an order, I follow orders because that's the way we grew up. What was driving me to do a lot of that, I was waiting for somebody to realise I was a good person and I was going to do whatever it took to prove that when I looked back, it wasn't coming from a positive place. It was coming from a need, a need for somebody to recognize me and say I was good. Kind of programmed into you 
I think we all did it. We looked for validation in different ways, but outside. exactly the same thing. Yeah, outside, the, exactly the same thing was driving all that needs for somebody to just notice you yeah, and notice the effort you're putting in. I would be like that, but it's different now. Like I did that before and I wouldn't have even been aware I was doing it. And I certainly would have no awareness of why I was doing it. Whereas now when I do things, I do them because I want to do them. I, I discovered I actually enjoy looking after people. I do feel I am acknowledged for it, but I don't need it. I have this thing years and years ago, you know, that you worked all your life for your kids. And when they grew up, they worked for you. Like that's gone now. Nobody does that anymore. And it's not even expected anymore. I know when mommy got sick and she had Alzheimer's and all that. The resentment I felt at the time because I hadn't dealt with anything was, why should I be minding her? Never minded me. And that's when I knew, especially when we wrote the book, that I hadn't done my work. Now, once I haven't done the work, I understand what she gave and why she gave it. But in fairness, it was only after she died and the, the shock of her death that I ever got to that place where I was willing to go there. Yeah, and it was incredible that it was harder to cope with the lack of love and nurturing from mammy than it was getting abused by dad. That was in your face. That was real. That was tangible. You couldn't see the lack of love and nurturing. You couldn't see it. So you couldn't deal with it until we were well down the road. And when we did come across it, we realized why we had left it to last. Because it was the toughest. It really was the hardest to, to come to terms with. And then to start seeing her and her life and the reality of the situation. Well, I don't think we were conscious that we were leaving her to last. But I would have been too quick to jump in and understand because I knew the life she had. You know, I had spoken to her and, you know, Mammy doesn't speak to anyone, but I had kind of pried certain information out of her. I think I jumped too quick into understanding her rather than giving myself any understanding that regardless of the life she had. Really and truly, I never dealt with my own pain for the loss of her. You know, that just caused problems down the road as well. Another thing now I would have really struggled with is if, if somebody found fault with me in any way, taking criticism is God. like, it's like death. Like, <laughs> taking criticism for something for me is so difficult. I, I couldn't describe how deep it goes. And you understand that because you already felt crap. Oh, yeah. You felt you weren't good enough. And here's somebody actually affirming, no, yeah. you're not good enough. You're just, you just pray to God for somebody to see it. Yeah. Because, like, I know you think I was the favourite and whatever. You can have that one. But I remember growing up thinking you were the little fat fairy, but you always had a smile on your face. And there's nobody walked in the door without commenting on it. And you were like Johnny Forticoats. I've never seen anyone wear so many fucking clothes. <laughs> but you were cute, you say. So people commented on you. I don't ever remember No, that. you see, and she doesn't remember either. But this is, it's just your perception. Yeah. That's what I saw. That's what I felt. I could have dropped fucking dead in front of them. And no one noticed me. And yet I was the favourite. That's the way I felt growing up. That it, I, there was nothing about me stood out. It's that conflict between needing to be seen and wanting to be invisible. Visible, yeah. Well, I think everything in our lives was such a contradiction. You know, I love him, I hate him kind of crap. But I think our need to be seen, our need to be noticed, our need to be loved, just all got tangled up. I think the saddest thing is we weren't aware of any of it. In all honesty, what would you say was the benefits in finding out? 
fact that we had difficulties forming attachments. When we looked at all of the difficulties we had individually, it seemed like a lot. But when we researched and found that there actually is a name for all of it and it is called attachment disorder and it does occur in infancy when children don't get the nurturing they need. All of these issues that we've been discussing grow out of that lack. And just to know that that exists, that it has been researched, again, it validates the areas we'd been looking at, the confusion we were feeling. And when you get the knowledge, you get the understanding. What naturally follows then is forgiveness. It's an onward and upward climb, but it is necessary to have the information. Yeah, and you can't change a behaviour or thought pattern if you're not aware that you have it. It doesn't change your past, it doesn't take anything away, but it introduces empathy and forgiveness and understanding, and that's all we all need. Because I think if you take away the self-judgment, there's so much pain that we carried so unnecessarily. I always felt like the abuse was dreadful, the worst thing that could have happened, but when I look at the abuse we did to ourselves afterwards, it was a lot worse. And that's why people feel that childhood sexual abuse is a life sentence it doesn't have to be any longer and in fairness when we were growing up when it was happening to us it it, it was a life sentence so thank god all of that is changing and that's it if we can get this information out there to as many people as possible that they can understand all the intricacies of their behaviors where they came from and why it's no longer necessary to hold yourself responsible for that You are responsible for your life right now, but you're not responsible for the way the abuse impacted you and how you responded. The biggest thing is understanding yourself, understanding that there's a reason that you think like this, feel like this, behave like this, that it is all attached. It makes it much easier to let go of. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, some of the information we have shared will resonate with you. This will give you a deeper understanding of yourself, plus allow you to move into a space where you can show compassion to yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you reacted to the abuse, it was normal. We are hopeful and optimistic that those in any position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse so please spread the word and share the information thank you you can follow us on facebook and twitter or contact us directly on the sisters at gmail.com you've been listening to the cavernous sisters count me in podcast we'd like to leave you with a thought for the day recovering from childhood sexual abuse requires resilience because you have to dig deep but never forget where you're heading is much better than where you are and you are already perfect you're amazing you just need a little time to remember that